0: Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Fife. Hi, everyone. Uh, As you may know, we're having a live How to Talk to Your Kids About Sex webinar this summer, actually starting in just a couple of weeks, and uh, we completely sold out, but we've received a few inquiries asking if we're going to have another one. And we aren't planning to do a live webinar anytime soon. And so we've decided to open up 10 more spots. That's 10 more households. So you can participate with your spouse or or your kids if they're the right age and you think it's appropriate. But um, that we are releasing those tickets. They will go fast. So if you want to attend the live webinar that starts in late June on a Saturday evening, the date I don't have currently, uh, then uh, click on the show notes and... You can find more information there. Thanks everyone.
1: We'll start off the show and like I'm fine with just even admitting when Tyson comes in being like, hey, welcome to the show.
0: He was <laughs> late again. Yeah, again. <laughs> Please bless
2: our franklins to give us strength in our bodies.
1: Hello and welcome to Bless the Refreshments where normal people have normal conversations about the gospel, making it way more fun and interesting to be a member of the church. So I'm not sure how many of you remember way back in episode one, when Burgess said he wanted to have an episode about sex, particularly talking about and normalizing sex. Well, he had to wait 56 episodes, but the wait is finally over. We know that talking about sex can be a hard subject to tackle, while tightrope walking the line of sacred and crass. So that's why we're listening to help again of Dr. Jennifer finlayson Fife. She gives us some great advice on how to talk about sex with our significant other, with our kids, and with the youth of the church. Oh, and I should mention that we had some technical difficulties during the episode. and Tyson does join us eventually. Hope you enjoy. We are so happy to have back on the show uh, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Today, we've got big stuff to talk about, uh, mm-hmm. and very happy that we have her expertise and her and her experiences. It's a show It's an episode that Burgess has been waiting for a very long time with. In fact, in our first episode, he was like, "This is the episode I want to talk about." Sorry, it's taken 54, 55. Or is this 56? This is episode 56. So, it's taken us a while. So, we apologize, but we're we're very excited to have you uh, Dr. Jennifer mason Fife on. Um uh, let's uh, first I'd like to let's chat about uh, what you've got going on in terms of programs uh, and where else can we find you in your material.
0: So, I do a lot of online teaching. So, I have courses for LDS couples and individuals about how to create a better emotional and sexual relationship. So that's really my shtick, is helping people really increase their the level of happiness and intimacy in their partnerships. So I have online courses, and I also have a podcast called Room for Two, where I'm interviewing real couples around the challenges they have in their marriages, around sexuality, faith, money, whatever it is, and so you get to listen in on these conversations that the couples are anonymous, of course, but, but you get to hear my input on how people can really truly see themselves more clearly and make their their marriages better, happier, more peaceful. So that's um, my two big offerings. And you can find me all on dot com. So finlayson-fife.com and you can see. Other podcast interviews like this that I have that are there. Some blog posts and things like that. Yeah. Oh,
1: I'm sure we'll talk about uh, your experiences from on Room for Two uh, during uh, this episode. But if anyone... I mean, everyone should check it out. It's, it's really good. Uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about how to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is... I feel like I've got a big mouth, but even for me, it's very hard to talk about. Mm-hmm. I, I think specifically talking about the subject, not hard for me, but mm-hmm. I think oh, talking about it when we involve people,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: the people that matter most to us is is hard. Yeah, so um, I, I'd like to, t- to talk or we'd like to chat with you today about... Um, about you know three separate things on instant instances on how we generally find ourselves talking about sex. One is in our romantic relationships, either with our okay. spouses or the people we're dating. Um, uh, how do we talk about sex with our kids mm-hmm. in a family or a parental setting? Yep. And then how do we talk? How do we effectively teach youth uh, about sex and the law of chastity? Mm-hmm. Um, so I asked you last time to solve the problem very quickly. So can you just give us all the answers during the next however long that we can get that?
0: Definitely.
1: Well, yeah, we have you. Great.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yes. So wait, are you going to give me at least a starting point? (laughs) No, No. (laughs) I'm just kidding.
2: (laughs) I can offer a starting point. Um, Before (laughs) before we, we get into the answers, can you kind of tell your story about sure. why you know how did you get to this place now where you know tons of followers yeah. and and you know be, being being um, an expert in this in the subject
0: that part i don't really know how i got <laughs> to have so many followers but but i'll tell you <laughs> it's because
1: you're smart you know what you're talking about
0: <laughs> well when i was younger i i have to say I, I mean i don't i don't think i knew that it was a a different ability within me but i definitely was very attuned to relationships and sorting out why some people seemed happy and why some people did not. So, I would watch the people in my ward, in my family. I was just kind of fascinated by the question of relationships and happiness. And then um, I think somewhere in adolescence, I knew I wanted to be a, a therapist, a psychologist, but I didn't know if I was Smart enough to do it, or if I could break with the cultural mores enough to get a PhD. But I, um, it became clear to me on my mission, basically, that this is really what I wanted to do, and that I felt that I had the clarity within myself to pursue it. And so I, I, I got a PhD in counseling psychology, and when I was dating my now husband. I was I was older than probably most people when they I married John when I was twenty nine. But I was close to getting married, trying to figure out a dissertation topic. And I was asked to teach um a couple of undergraduate courses on human sexuality. And so I I said yes to it, even though I had no experience I'm like a, <laughs> an LDS person teaching on <laughs> human sexuality. But but, that, you know, i I did it from a kind of cross-cultural and historical perspective, so I could kind of have the students think about how different groups have related to the topic of sexuality. And then that really made me start thinking about how have we, as latter-day saints, thought about sexuality and how does it compare? I'd steeped myself in a lot of feminism and feminist thinking and trying to understand it and figure out women's place in the world. And in the church, i was I cared about those topics from about age four on. (laughs) But, um, you know, so I was doing a lot of thinking, but I also felt like a lot of times feminism or sort of the larger culture had a misunderstanding of conservative religious and sexual traditions and kind of minimized it and didn't see the beauty and the good in it. At the same time that I saw a lot of friends who were struggling a lot with sexuality, LDS friends who were getting married and saying, Jennifer, not that great. You know, don't, don't get married for it. That's for sure. (laughs) That kind of thing. And and so I was thinking, you know, we're not necessarily doing so well here either. And so I just started thinking about, this is what I want to figure out. I want to figure out, you know, who, who in our faith has had which women have actually transitioned happily into marriage who have not, why have they not, why have they, if they have. So I, that was the focus of my dissertation work. And I knew when I was getting my PhD that I really wanted to specialize in working with couples. But those two just kind of came together. And and then when I was I, I was I, I got my degree, but then I stayed home for a number of years with the kids. And then when I was kind of deciding to open my practice, the kids had gotten old enough, um I was interviewed on my dissertation topic and that kind of went viral in a in a LDS world sense. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and then people started reaching out and asking if I would come and teach or if I'd present or, and so then I started doing my online courses and, you know, just, it just kind of grew from there, mostly in response that what I was saying people were resonating with and wanting more input. And so that just, it kind of grew from, from that has been very, very rewarding. I, I felt so uh, fortunate to, to have such meaningful work to do.
1: Why do you think people have, have this has resonated mm-hmm. with members of the church who seem to feel like speaking about sex is very taboo? Because I mean, that's how I started yeah. following you. Is that you? Uh, I don't remember where I st- I found your podcast, or mm-hmm. at least at least a podcast that you were a guest on. But it, what you said just spoke to my heart. I was like, this is exactly what I'm going through. This is exactly my yeah. experience. You know, how do I? How do I? Get better at talking about this? How do I yeah. get better about expressing my needs and accepting my, you know, where I'm at uh, yeah. in my sexuality?
0: Well, I, I think one of the reasons why what I speak about resonates is because a lot of us growing up in the church or in our families learn a false idea that sexuality and spirituality are incongruent. Right. And that spiritual, sorry, that sexuality is a threat. To spirituality, that as soon as you hit puberty, Satan now has a pathway right into mm-hmm. corrupting your soul, and and so a lot of anxiety for men and women, right? It gets expressed in different ways between men and women, but a lot of anxiety about the fact of being sexual, of desires, of the body, and I would say this pleasure
1: to- like pleasure, yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. If it's not in the service of somebody else's needs, it's mm-hmm. it's it's um, suspect. So, the problem is is that that way of thinking creates tremendous pain, especially in marriage, because you either deal with that fear by suppressing sexuality or you deal with it through a kind of vacillating between suppression and indulgence mm-hmm. and those that often creates deep chasms within marriage and also just within people's own souls, even if they're not married right that even married or not, it can create that. So, I think people are yearning to reconcile with their sexuality and still claim their faith or claim what is good, that they still want to live a moral and meaningful life, but not be at war with themselves. And I believe that we have a theology that provides for a reconciliation, a deep reconciliation with our embodiment because we believe it's a part of our spiritual development i'm working on a book right now that's meant for latter day saints about basically sexuality as a pathway to spirituality that we that the body is a pathway to understanding divinity to learning how to love and be loved even through loving sexuality right sexuality right. in which loving and being loved can actually be A way to deeply understand the beauty, the joy in life, the transcendent, the liminal, and you can't you can't find that without your sexuality being having a deep moral anchor, being connected to love, but it's absolutely a part of spirituality and beauty. So we. I think yearn for it and a lot of good people are trying to make sense of it and are looking for some way to and I think at least some of the things that I say have helped people begin to start putting their experience together in a way that allows them to have their faith and their sexuality.
1: I I think what you just said really encompassed everything that I think we want to talk about today. But let's mm-hmm. talk about some of those ways specifically um within, again, we've talked about lots of different instances in which sexual conversations will help alleviate that anxiety and, and sometimes that shame uh, and the level of taboo-ness, taboo mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> No. I'm pretty sure that's Ta- a word. It's <laughs> sure. a word, right? <laughs> so and why don't we start with romantic relationships? Where do you see... Uh, couples, um, again, either married or dating, where do you f- see their conversations about sex falling short?
0: Well, I, I think that what I'd say, say is the fundamental problem, and it may not necessarily be related to whether or not people will talk about sex. The fundamental problem is people not being at peace with the fact of their sexual nature. And because they're not reconciled within themselves, they may want sex, but they don't want to really be known sexually
2: mm.
0: to themselves or the other. So, they may want sexual validation or I want you to want me. Right. But I don't know if I want to really be exposed, knowable, because if I'm afraid of this part of myself or I feel like I you know, need to prove myself in the sexual realm in some way... Um, or I need to manage you through my sexuality, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, B- people are going to have a hard time being intimate sexually. Sure. Knowable. So to the degree we can't truly be okay with our sexual nature, we're going to struggle to create intimate relationships.
2: How, how would that personality trait, if that's the right way to say it, like how, if somebody's struggling with that, with not wanting to, be known it's probably more subconscious than it is conscious i'm guessing yes so how would it manifest itself like how would somebody recognize that in themselves
0: one version of it is sexual repression that's the most obvious form which is you know i've worked with a lot of low desire women and they often felt for example in their adolescence that this was a dangerous part of them it was going to make them undesirable to a future mate that this was going to derail their spirituality. And so if they were going to be good feminine women, they needed to push this sexuality down. And so um, that's one form It's just like, I don't want to know this. So I, I'll be there for you. I'll serve my husband's needs, quote unquote. That's a way of hiding because now it's in the service model. It's a way of earning your keep. You're going to provide the money. I'll provide the sex, you <laughs> know, and that, that becomes like a way to disown your sexuality, not claim your eroticism, your erotic nature, but, you know, find some way to hide within it. Hmm. Another version is the sexually entitled higher desire person that looks like they're very comfortable with their sexuality because they want to have it all the time, you know, or whatever, or they're constantly on on their mind all the time or whatever people may think. But it's it's actually more anxiety-based than it is at peace because I'm looking for you to validate me sexually. I'm looking for you, lower desire person, to make me feel okay about myself. And so, you may be in pursuit, but it's got a lot more anxiety, fear, and self-rejection in it than meets the eye. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked with somebody who was just so focused on his wife's sexual anxiety. But, you know, when I actually had him write out a dialogue with God, meaning sometimes I have people write dialogues to kind of just see what's operating in their minds, the God in his mind was very contemptuous towards his sexuality. And he had way more anxiety about sex than his wife did. But you wouldn't know it from how focused he was on his wife's struggle to want to be close to him. But of course he was a tough guy to be close to because he was demanding and anxious. And so her mm-hmm. low desire was in part not wanting to deal with the loads of self-rejection and anxiety that were a part of his reality.
2: That's really interesting to me. That seems so fragile.
0: Say hey, more Burgess, what do you mean like
2: so So if somebody's that anxious, like this is um, say the spouse in the relationship wants to bring up, hey, I think we can try like do this better in the bedroom or i think you know our sex life could improve in this way that right that might be taken as a personal insult
0: yeah that's the other thing so yeah. it's not just our rejection of our sexuality but if we ourselves because sexuality is such a powerful way to be in connection with another person if we question our own value we can't handle our sense of self well there's very little room for critique that is right. hey this isn't working for me well, if your sense of self is very fragile, you're going to be highly reactive to that, wanting to shut it down, getting defensive, right? Or in there trying to earn that you're the right kind of lover. Right. But but then you're also very anxious and not really in connection with your spouse or yourself, which is you know antithetical to intimacy. It's more a performance than an than an intimate encounter.
1: How does how have you seen people? It sounds like the first step. Uh, like our last episode, you said uh, the way to suck less as a spouse is self confrontation. Yeah. right? Yes. The same same thing here. Is where am I at in my acceptance acceptance of my sexuality, and where can I go from here? After they've after you've seen people kind of self confront, what are what's the next step?
0: It, what I would maybe say in a couple where there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of reactivity is just to to practice. Like seeking mm-hmm. to understand, then be understood. It's a very simple mantra, right. even our Covey idea, which is, it's a brilliant idea, much easier to say than to do,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: right? I've sometimes been saying to myself, "I'm like, yeah, but I, I want to be understood." <laughs>
1: <laughs> but they're not understanding what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. So in order for them to, to have a good input, like they've got to know what I'm thinking about. Right, exactly, right, for sure.
0: <laughs> How long do we have to suffer in ignorance <laughs> while you speak? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's especially challenging in marriage. It's amazing. You think, okay, well, this is my eternal companion, or this is the you know the love of my life. But to talk about places where you disagree. You know, it's, it can be ridiculously challenging because this person that matters so much to you wants something different sexually than you want, believes something differently than you believe. Mm-hmm. And it stretches us. And so what we tend to lead with is, let me tell you how you're wrong. And let me tell you what I want and what I think, because I want my current reality to prevail. We're afraid of the... Pressure on our sense of reality and self that knowing and loving another will uh, induce, and so we resist it. Yeah. But love is what grows us up, and so if you want a peaceful marriage, you have to seek to understand. You have mm-hmm. to think about how does my spouse experience me sexually. Right. Why does my spouse want or not want? the things that they say, how does it make sense from their point of view? And then the really scary idea is, how do I, who am, I'm going to look at myself through my spouse's eyes. That can be scary. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. you're like, Ugh, I'm, I I'm won't not do that. That, yeah, that exactly.
1: can't be the answer, Dr. <laughs> no. Can you give us something else? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. You're like, not that nice and not that sexy. Okay. <laughs> 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 exactly. uh, uh, but, you know, you certainly can learn a lot when you start waking up. And it gives you more agency because you can see more and you have more options in how you're going to conduct yourself. But that's the way you create a, to really come to peace with your sexuality is you have to choose in an honest way around the kind of sexual being you're going to be, how you're going to conduct yourself.
2: That's really good. Yeah. I really love that. The way you said it, it, that's agency. That yeah. strengthens yeah. our agency because if we're not if we're not grounded in reality, yeah. there's very little choices, very little way we can go.
0: That's exactly right.
2: Yeah. That's I yeah. love that.
0: Yeah. Uh, and this is the first
1: time I've ever thought that the journey that we go on sexually is not a spurt-of-the-moment thing. It is we've got to be able to sit back and say, okay, what do we want to be? That's what right. do I want to be? Exactly. Is there a way that we can Co-create something that gets us there, or at least, yeah. yeah. Oh man, exactly.
0: That's, that's fascinating. well, and then you know, yeah. and just as I imagine, we may talk about as in talking to your kids. Yeah, you want not this. Don't do that. Do that. I mean, you, obviously, you want to structure their lives that they yeah. don't have infinite choices. Obviously, but you want them to start thinking about who do I want to be? How do I want to be in relationship to my sexuality? What kind of a partner. Do I mm-hmm. want to be someday? Because that allows them to make choices not out of fear. Not out of self-hatred, self-rejection, but out of a direction, giving a direction to their emerging sexuality that prepares them to love and be loved someday in a marriage and really bring sexuality in a way that creates beauty there, creates sustenance there. Mm-hmm. but we we are so fear-based sometimes because the teachers themselves are fear-based and fearful. So we're not able to offer better than what we know often. But if you know that sexuality is a good thing, you're in a position to really offer. This is a wonderful gift. But what you do with it matters, because you can use it to do harm to yourself or others, or you can harness that in a way, harness it as in direct it in a Mm -hmm. way to create a really powerful way to love and be loved. And so, giving that that vision and that sense of agency. Th- those in my dissertation research and in my the work with other people, those are the, the people that are able to really be at peace with their sexuality and really create an intimate marriage.
1: So it sounds like in, in any of these cases, to be an effective teacher or an effective communicator, you just have to be comfortable with your own sexuality.
0: Yeah. Or at least and, that's or, a good
1: place to start.
0: It's a, yes. And what I would say is even in that seeking to understand... Just calming yourself down while mm-hmm. you're seeking to understand, right? Because what's happening, you know, I remember once being in a conflict with my husband years ago and I was just confident that I was absolutely right and he was wrong. But I I, I had that <laughs> seek to understand in my, I, you know, the great thing about teaching is that you like have to, you have to live by the things you teach or at yeah. least you <laughs> feel pressure to. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Well, I'm going to seek to understand his dumb idea. And then I'm going to explain.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let me understand this so I can disprove it. Boom. <laughs> right.
0: So I just settled myself down because I was like, no, he doesn't. And I, I was genuine. I really thought he misunderstood me and what was mm-hmm. going on in the moment. And so I just calmed down and I just listened to what he was saying. And, you know, it's uncomfortable because he's, you know, showing a view of me that I didn't see Mm -hmm. And an experience that he's having that I couldn't see. And so, as I'm seeking to understand, it's changing my view of myself and the situation, honestly. Not because I needed him to think I was listening, but because I was listening and it was changing my view of what's true. And so, when he, so it's uncomfortable. I guess my point is, it's uncomfortable. The desire to refute is high to protect your own ego. So, when he finished oh, his idea. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Then I was like,
1: yeah.
0: so now it was my turn. And I'm like, you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> I could just see it. It was like, oh my gosh, he's absolutely right. And I, th- that was a gift to myself. I mean, to him maybe because I wasn't going to fight him on the truth. But to myself, because I could see myself better. Mm-hmm. And see the negative impact I could have in my blindness
1: a- again, it sounds like again we 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 know that anxiety is the thing, and it sounds like kids it seems like kids can really pick up on things that we're uncomfortable talking about, yes, for sure. and they really program it within themselves to almost mirror that anxiety if we have it, yeah, so a- as you prep to talk about kids about your your own kids about sex, I don't know where do you where do you start?
0: Well, you know, I, I teach a how to talk to your kids about sex course, right? And I yeah. start at birth, um, uh, up till eighteen. Then you probably should stop talking about it. <laughs> <Okay>. But <laughs> I'm kind of kidding. But 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 really, the work is not the day before they get married.
1: Right. It's yeah. just
0: not. It's, it's not a it's,
1: checklist of things. No, that I Talk about that. Okay. Talk about that. <laughs> I actually, a, a friend. It's a way of
0: being with your kids, and yeah. it's understanding yourself to be a mentor. While understanding that kids, parents, and sex don't mix easily and sh- and for good reason, mm-hmm. so that it's is naturally to say, uncomfortable. It's actually yeah. exactly right. It's it's uncomfortable for a reason, but you still have a job to do. And the younger your kids are, the more able you are to download some messages that really matter. Now. While I think it's good to have conversations because not having them is its own meaning, the most important thing is for you to truly be okay with your sexual nature and your kid's sexual nature. Because if they can track that, you know, 90% of the battle has been achieved. Because they're not walking around afraid of their embodiment and their Mm -hmm. capacity for pleasure and their sensuality. They just already understand that it's an acceptable part of being human and that they're beloved, right? By God, by their parents, that it's okay, right? Now that you still, you know, how you relate to it matters, how you, but that's all kind of just secondary Mm -hmm. because when people are not at peace with their sexuality, that's when they're looking at porn, having premarital sex making poor choices around sexuality because they're in an anxious relationship with their embodied reality.
2: Can you expand on that like yeah. not especially the rea- the reality part? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And how uh, is sexual indulgence and like that, that so that's So like, really let's good. just
0: if you like grew let's just take the maybe the ideal version of it. If you grow up in your family and you know that your parents are comfortable meaning sexuality is comfortable enough that people aren't necessarily talking about it a lot because you know, mom and dad like each other. You mm-hmm. see mom and dad kiss each other. Dad touches mom, she doesn't pull away, that they like each other. Your mom and dad kiss you easily, right? Pick you up, hug you, love you. They're, they're at peace in their bodies. Mom doesn't mind being attractive. She's not trying to cover herself up. She's not working it either because she's not, you know, trying to seduce the neighborhood. She's just comfortable in her a sex- lot of
1: assumptions there <laughs> <I'm> just <kidding. laughs> oh. know, she's, just,
0: she's just comfortable being attractive yeah. or a sexual yeah. being and yeah. you can, and kids can map that they don't mm-hmm. may not have language for it they just can tell which is very different yeah. if mom and dad dislike each other are anxious about sexuality are afraid every time something comes on tv you know that they're trying to turn it off trying to it just it just transmits a ton of anxiety around sexuality, and so that makes it very hard for kids to make sense of it because their fear is highly connected to just trying to understand this aspect of being human, and so the fear is really undermining of a of a healthy integration.
2: Hmm.
0: It's and in, you know it's helpful for people sometimes when I talk about it in terms of food, right? If you grow up in a right. home where your parents just naturally are feeding you healthy food. Nobody's freaking out about dessert or weight or like getting really worried about, you know, food. They're just relating to food in a way that blesses your life, makes you healthy, offers some pleasure, but isn't a coping strategy, isn't something you're going to in excess. It just makes your life richer. Well, you're much less likely to have an eating disorder or have some kind of compulsive reality because there's just not anxiety around it you've learned already how to relate to it in a way that makes your life better if on the other hand you have parents who are focused on weight all the time as a measure of the person themselves anxious about you know calories and food and overeating and then dieting and all there's just so much it's so fraught that one sense of self is deeply connected to food and weight and so the chances of being at peace or moderate are very low because now you're going to either go into repression like anorexia you know mm-hmm. the dieting fear of weight all the time or more compulsivity around food and so it, it's the anxiety that derails and really puts it into the extremes so if you mm-hmm. can say like you're if you can live my sexuality is good your sexuality is good to your children, you're living it more than anything else, right? They can feel it, right? If they're playing right, with their, right. you know, themselves in the bathtub and you're, if you're freaking out, you know, that's just the whole message in and of itself, where if you're just, yeah, like, of course, my child is figuring themselves out. That doesn't make them an evil child.
1: <laughs> of course. <laughs> it makes yeah. them a yeah. child, right?
0: But for some people that they're like, oh, if I let this go on, next thing you know, he's going to be, Pedophile or something, you know. So parents can get very, very afraid. And so to be accepting and loving, but directing, you know, like no, that's not polite to have your hand in your pants when the guests are over. And they're, you know, to your four-year-old, you know, definitely to your (laughs) fifteen-year-old. I just tease, but
1: no, no don't tease about that. That's 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 a true statement (laughs) for sure.
0: (laughs) Exactly. But, so, you want to give limits and you want right. to teach them about being modest and, you know, putting clothes on when there's guests around and things like that. But it's not shame-based, it's enculturating them, mm-hmm. right? And making a distinction between public and private and, and you know, and politeness and impolite, but not shaming of sexuality or pleasure. And so, you can give them mm-hmm. a direction while still celebrating the fact of this capacity. Right. And, you know, at age eight or so, you want to give them, you lay it down. What? what how, how does how do babies, how does that happen? How does it happen? Right. It seems gross to you now. Someday it won't. It's an important message in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and giving them, but most importantly, again, is the sense that you can handle those conversations.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because if kids think mom is going to lose it, even if mom says, hey, come talk to me anytime you want. The child knows I'm not gonna do that to you or me. That's so an awkward I <laughs> conversation ender. Yes. Then, right. So, not
1: an actual invitation for sure.
0: Yeah. If if the if the parent is anxious. If the yeah. parent's pretty matter of fact and yeah, this is it. And it's a really good thing. And someday you'll you'll understand better why it's such a good thing, but it's a lovely gift and you mean it, well, they can feel it and they can see like, okay, mom, dad can handle these conversations. And so and so you're you're a resource to them. And helping them to, it's, a, it's fundamental to self-acceptance, but also to being able to make good choices because they're not then in their adolescence trying to prove that they're cool, uh, you know, or acceptable or trying to get someone to like them through their sexuality because they, they're already operating in a basic self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. And so, they're not pulled into those that need to make themselves okay through their sexuality.
1: What are some age-appropriate topics? Like, how do we talk to a three-year-old versus an eight-year-old versus a 12-year-old versus a 16-year-old?
0: Yeah. But so like a three-year-old, you know, naming body parts, Right. right? A basic, you know, your body belongs to you. You know, there's a mm-hmm. simple children's book that's actually called that, which I really like. It's just about, you know, your body is yours. It's a gift to you. And you get to decide who touches it, right? And like really giving a sense of this is mine. And so it's a simple concept, but it's actually a very protective concept for kids, especially just um, really granting that sense to them because it's a way of helping them not be, um, have any, if they understand that concept, they're more able to talk to you if somebody is not, is violating that sense for themselves. So it's just a, a beginning concept that's really important. When a child is eight, it's a good time to give them the basics of what sexuality is, what certain words mean, what words they may, you know, eight to 10, what words they may be hearing in the culture at large, you know, what they mean. They Mm -hmm. can just have a way of making sense of it. It's also a good time to be downloading your values to your kids and also helping them start to think about what values are maybe out in, you know, on television and commercials and social media? Uh, What are Mm -hmm. some of those messages and allowing them to process them with your help? When they're age 12, that's a really good time to be, you know, facilitating those conversations. What do you think about the fact that your friend is doing that? You know, what do you make of that? Or what do you make of the lyrics of that song? It's like, you're not telling them everything, but you're facilitating them starting to think through the messages that are there and determining their own mind, not just being passive recipients, but but consumers, like scrutinizing consumers of mm-hmm. those messages. You're also helping them at age 12 to start to think about how they want to be in relationship to their sexuality. What is to honor themselves, what they want to create through it, what right. they want to protect for themselves. And especially when it's not being defined by pressures peer pressures and so on because peers will become progressively more important mm-hmm. it, to them is helping them have more of that kind of internal decision and at 16 you know you you want to you you want to start allowing your kids to have more and more autonomy and more and more right. freedom because they are going to leave hopefully right at 18 but <laughs> right. that you're so you're still protective of some boundaries, right? Of when they're going to date, when they can, you know, how much time they can spend out with friends, how late, those kinds of things are helpful because you don't want to give more autonomy than a child can handle in a way that y- your kids are going to make mistakes. You They need to make mistakes. Uh-huh. You just want to ideally keep the boundaries contained enough that they can make mistakes that don't hurt them too much, but learning who they are in the process. Uh-huh um and so it's at 16 you're you're maybe managing those boundaries and you're there more as a consultant than you are you know trying to micromanage or you know try to get them to you're not going to be talking to them like you did when they're 8 at that point they have they know a lot more they have a lot more autonomy and want a lot more autonomy they're still listening to you they will act like they're not but they still are <laughs> I it was a, a
1: good reminder for sure. I
0: have a friend who um whose son got in trouble, like stayed out past curfew or something like that. And so the punishment was that she needed to drive him everywhere. He couldn't he couldn't drive for a month or two weeks or something. Don't know. Mm-hmm. So this was when I was doing the Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist series. And so she was like, Well, we're just gonna I think she was a little bit worried about decisions he might be making on that front. And so she says, Well, I I'm driving, I get to decide what we listen to. So she just nice. starts putting in these recordings. And at first he's like, oh my gosh, like I cannot believe. And then, you know, after a couple drives, if you, he's 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 not complaining. He's just kind of listening quietly. And then after, I guess, a couple of weeks or whatever, she's like, you know, we can, we can listen to what you want at this point. And he's like, no, yeah, go go ahead. You, we can listen to that more. <laughs>
1: so, so the I will not like it, but it'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. That's the point, awesome. The
0: point being, like, he's going to act a little like I don't care, but yeah. he is listening, is looking. Our kids are looking still for yeah. our values and our understanding, but they want autonomy too.
2: What you're saying, I think, it really just comes back to uh, this idea of agency, like you were talking about at the beginning. If if we are fear-based and talking to our kids fear-based. It's yeah. almost because we're trying to control their reality. That's right. You know, That's so if we, right. you know, the way that you kind of laid it out right there, it there's so much. You know, the boundaries that we set aren't controlling boundaries. They're just just showing them, hey, this is too far. Yeah, um, and That's but right. then within those boundaries, they get to kind of build their own Sense
0: reality through it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The boundaries are not about your fear and wanting to control them. The boundaries are to facilitate their development and their deeper trust in themselves and them being able to live true to the best in themselves. The boundaries are there to protect that, but that you respect their agency and you're facilitating their agency. Because when people are living out the rules of their sexuality in an obedience frame and an external locus of control, they do poorly. Like the women in my right. dissertation, when they had it internal, they're like, look, uh, the law of chastity matters to me because I want to be in a committed, loving relationship. So, I'm going to be very conservative in my dating relationships. I'm going to be careful, you know, but that was because it was in line with their own values. Right. Women that I interviewed who had this sense that their bishop, you know, wanted it, God wanted it, but not God in a like, a sense of God being my higher self or a reflection of my highest self, but this kind of punitive God.
1: Yeah. Um, An authority figure.
0: Yeah. Or like that, you know, I'm not going to be desirable to a future husband. That external locus of control made it so that they were much less able to actually choose for themselves and were much more vulnerable to coercion and pressure To do things that they didn't even want to do, but trying to kind of earn a self through it, and so that internal locus is really, really important.
1: Intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. That's right. Extrinsic motivation. Ooh,
2: that's that's really good. I I wanted to ask a question. It's so I think it's very different between boys and girls. We all have Mm -hmm. daughters, Mm -hmm. Um, and so are there tips to to teach the difference? Like, how do we teach? boys to how do we teach girls are there certain other different things that sure. like we need to be sensitive of um
0: mm-hmm.
2: or are there different strategies and obviously this is general everybody's going to be different but like mm-hmm. is there are there general ways um that fathers can can teach daughters you know mm-hmm. tr- even church leaders can teach young women versus young men
0: uh, one thing i would say is that there is good research that shows the better the Quality of the relationship between the father and the daughter, the slower she is to have her first intercourse. So, meaning that the more likely she is to wait until she's older and it's really a choice. So, that is, she trusts in masculine love. Okay. okay. It doesn't feel she has to earn it. If she feels masculine love is something that must be earned, that really sets women up to kind of use sexuality as a way to be desired or safe or enough and you just never want to give people that idea and we give that culturally all the time to women. Be pure, be desirable, don't screw it up so some man will want you someday. And you know, I've worked with people where they, you know, maybe went too far in a dating relationship maybe even did it because the guy was disrespecting her boundaries or she was trying to say no but felt like she had to be nice this is another message we give right. females too much and then felt like I'm the licked cupcake I am I'm am, I'm now damaged goods and then we're more likely to do things with people they didn't even want to do it but they felt like I have now no right kind of because I'm already impure and so kind of who am I to stand up for myself, right? So when we frame it too much in earning love and earning desirability, as opposed to living up to your best self, being true to your desires, right? We really set up to have the opposite impact. The, uh, the other thing I would say is like in teaching, so modesty is a great concept, meaning Modesty is a great thing. Actually, it's a, it's a way of preserving sexuality because mm-hmm. if we were just all walking around naked all the time, there's no mystery. It wouldn't be sexy.
1: I read something, or you're working with a client who always had to have her hair covered because of her religion. Yes, and he said when he when her husband finally got to see her hair, it was
0: amazing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and interesting. So just this hair was just, and this was a Western guy, but the hair itself was just because of the meaning that was mm-hmm. between them it was just so powerful and so sexy because of it was protected for him. Meaning it was, I don't mean like it belonged to him, but that this was a part of herself that she was sharing just with him. And that gave it very, very high meaning. And I think that's a beautiful part of our religious teaching is that this kind of preserving sexuality as a special way in which you will be with your spouse. It's, it's I'm preserving it for this relationship, for us, right? That is has its own beauty and meaning in it, right? That elevates the relationship immediately. Not as because you have needs and I'm going to give you the gift of my sexuality. It's not that. And I know it maybe sounds similar. It's more that I want to bring this most intimate part of myself to our relationship, to create something here where we share our deepest selves with one another. But that's not in an earning frame, that's an intimacy frame, and it's, it's very different in its impact. Um, so, it, it's good to teach modesty, but it is not good to teach it as women controlling men's sexuality by covering themselves up. For I sure. think I think it's absolutely fine to talk about, you know, and some people may not like this, but I think men are more visual. Men mm-hmm. are more, the testosterone, they're, they're visual, they're, all the research points to these differences. And so, no wonder we women drive you all nuts. (laughs) (laughs) We're pretty. (laughs) And it is a kind of power that women often have in a sense, right? And it's okay to recognize that you have it. And I think it's good to be respectful and not abuse it, right? Don't abuse it to get validation or abuse it to mess with people. And I think it's fine to talk about that because it's respectful and it's respectful and it's a way of actually self-respecting, being respectful of others and respecting the amazingness of your eroticism as a woman. But you want to talk mm-hmm. about it in terms of its how cool it is, how remarkable that yeah. feminine you know, beauty is. And to, in a sense, uh, preserve its specialness by being careful about it. But it's not a shaming message and it's not a, you know, don't do this to the men because as soon as you say you're you're you have to help the men who are barely handling it themselves you right. have set up a meaning that men are not trustworthy that you're half responsible mm-hmm. for their sexuality and that meaning in marriage destroys intimacy if you're really going to be a desirable man you've got to be able to handle your sexuality in ways right. that are trustworthy and mm-hmm. that's got to be fully on you as a man right yep. And so you want to talk to men, not like, you know, they're, that they can't handle themselves because we do teach men that, that sort of their sexuality is bigger than they are. And that's like tying people's hands behind their back and telling them to, you know, it's just a very debilitating message rather than this is a powerful part of you, but you ultimately are the driver and the chooser and how you choose is going to accrue to your strength and your peace, or it's going to erode it. And so you owe it to yourself to choose wisely, not because these sexual urges are bad, but because you want to relate to it in a way that accrues to your peace of mind and your ability to handle who you are as a man. Right. So we the, the, the dependency stuff is where we really mess up people, uh, people's ability to be in an intimate partnership.
2: Going back to agency
0: as well, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: So, I, I really just wanted to know what it felt like to be like Burgess and not say anything for the first half of the episode. <laughs> and then pop in at the end with uh, with the saving grace of uh, of wisdom. I don't have any wisdom, but I mean,
2: <laughs> uh, if there's anyone I've never who's going to give us never done that. <laughs>
1: saving grace of wisdom, it's going to be Dr. Finlayson Five and then Tyson and then Burgess and then me. So, I, I get that. Tyson, now that you're with us, do you want to? We have maybe time for like a real quick question. Do you want to give us do you want to take do is there any one question you've been dying to talk about in terms of teaching the law of chastity to to teenagers? I think I would wreck the episode if I asked any questions at this point. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, one one last thing before you go. What's your what it's like what is one doctrine that you feel like supports a sex positive message in our church and in our faith?
0: Just the idea that embodiment that we have parents in heaven that are embodied, right? And that mm-hmm. We need embodiment for spiritual progression, right? So, right. a lot of Christian traditions think of the body as a maybe a necessary evil or an impediment to spirituality. You swear off sensuality in order to get closer to God, is what, mm-hmm. you know, aesthetics may, may believe. Aesthetics. I'm saying it's right. Way, like <laughs> asceticism, I can't say it correctly. Right. <laughs> but in our understanding, it's that you actually, the body, it facilitates your spiritual development, your wisdom. And this mm-hmm. is sexuality is a part of it. And you know, Parley P. Pratt and James Talmadge, you know, each have I'm I'm working on it in my book, so I talked I quote them earlier in it. But that that this embracing of sexuality and embodiment is a uniquely Latter-day Saint teaching. And you know, as as I think James Talmadge talked about. So it's that this is really something that we should celebrate and embrace much more than we do. We tend to go to these sort of other traditions around sexuality. They've kind of infiltrated our cultural teaching and actually mask the truths that are there for us around progression, around love being the way into deeper truth, around the beauty and the gift of our embodiment and how it leads us closer to the divine in ourselves and in in our parents in heaven.
1: God, so good. All right. Well, we will let you go. Thank you so much again. A wonderful, another great conversation, and uh, we'd love to have. Look, uh, we got, we'd always love to have you on again. I really enjoy our conversations, so we'll we'll definitely have you on again. So, great. thanks again for 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 being with us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Happy Easter, Dr. Finlayson Five.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks again for Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Five for joining us. Another great conversation with her. So, what did you think? Why is talking about sex so difficult? And what kind of things did Dr. Finlayson Five say to help you have more authentic conversations with the people in your life? Let us know. You can continue the conversation by shooting us an email at blessarefreshments123 at gmail.com.
0: Please let us also get home safely. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.